I did not train you to be a demon or a human. I showed you how to be an artist. To be an artist is to do one thing only. An artist gives all they have to the art. Your strengths and deficiencies, your loves and shames. Perhaps the people you collected. There may be a demon in you, but there is more. If you do not invite the whole, the demon takes two chairs, and your art will suffer. Then what do I do? Each morning, start a fire. And begin again. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. Matt Valor and I recently spoke with Dan Seidel, who is working toward a curatorial theology. Uh, that's something he's developing at Drew University, along with Catherine Keller and Petra Carlson. Uh, for those of you who follow the show, we spoke with him recently, and you'll know that he's one of the founding members of the ICIS, the International Congress for Infrathin Studies. And um, yeah, he's an interesting guy, has had a career in the art space as a historian and curator. I think you'll find his project is a uh, pretty interesting one. Um, He also has a couple books he's written over the years, so I'll link to those. Feel free to check those things out. And... I'll also link to the Labyrinth Project that gets referenced uh, several times throughout, which is something Matt Valor had worked on um, a while back, and that's worth a look as well. So I hope you enjoy it, and here's Dan Seidel. Hey. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. How's it going? Doing well. Where are you at right now? I'm in Stockholm, Sweden, where I'm spending at least through December of 2024. I arrived at the end of August, and so I'll be here at least through the fall semester of 24. Nice. It seems like you lead a very uh, itinerant life. Is that is that true? Oh, yeah. That's by choice, yeah? Necessity in many ways. I was teaching art history at King's College and it closed this summer so there really isn't any hey Matt so I'm um, it's becoming uh, something that I'm more comfortable with and Mm -hmm. yeah I hope um, that uh, this place can be a longer term thing so that's what I'm hoping for yeah it can be exciting for a while but living out of a suitcase gets old for sure how's it going Matt yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Just got back from Belfast, which was nice. I've been when they're, you know, I'm doing the PhD there, but I hardly ever go. So I actually managed to get there, which was great. Yeah, I saw some pictures. It looked like you had a good time. Ed, it's good. It is good to see you. So last time we, last time we were in the same space together, it was at Chester. That's right. And you were desperately trying to find your lost luggage. I feel like that was like what consumed you. Like came to the conference and you were en route to somewhere else. And it was like, how do I get my bag? I, I just, know. I called the number. They put me to another number. 
I didn't get an answer, a voicemail. I, I just, I couldn't get anything done. I was thinking so much about it. So, yeah. But it's great <laughs> to be with you again, Dan. And it's been brilliant reading the stuff you sent through. I mean, obviously, I'm sort of familiar with it a bit already, but I really enjoyed engaging right. with that. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. What, what was the event you guys were at? It was the Biennial uh, International Society for Religion, Literature and Culture Conference. Uh, at which our mutual friend Petra Carlson was one of the panel chairs for Material Religion, mm. and it was it was a cool event. I I really enjoyed it. It was a nice nice vibe between academics. I mean, sometimes you go to conferences and they're just very dry. Oh yeah, I just think what what are we doing here? But this yeah. was like some good conversation, and then you know you have dinner and you go to the pub, and it was it was a good experience for me. Yeah, those those yeah, academics those academic seminars could could use a little curatorial work. Well, sure. there was a there's a curator, a Swiss curator, Hans Ulrich Obrist, who organized a conference for artists and scientists, and it didn't have any panels. All it was was the most interesting stuff about going to conferences, which was sitting around drinking and uh, having conversation. So it was completely unstructured. He just put them together and allowed that to happen. So I've always liked that aspect of focusing on that in-between stuff. Yeah. I suppose if there aren't papers being produced, you know, there's no work being done. So anyway. And you can't get your department to pay for it. And you've got all, all kinds of things. You can't tell them you're, you want to go yeah. halfway around the world to have beers and uh, talk to your friends and meet new ones. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's just a different variety of papers, please. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, where are you at right now? I'm in New Jersey, where I live. You're in Jersey, okay. Yeah, I live um, not too far from Drew, but never get over there, honestly. And we had talked about meeting, I think, maybe. That's right, that's right, but you're, uh, you took off. You fled this. You fled the country, so we can't do the Montclair Art Museum, which I've lived around most of my life, but have never been inside. I pass it by. I'm always like, oh, I wonder what's going on in there, and that's that's the end of it. <laughs> and Matt V, where are you? Where are you at right now? So I'm in Cornwall, which is the very southwest of the UK, right down near like the bit that sticks out. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking out on final. Well, I always think it's the final day of sun before some sort of deep dark sets in. For, But I mean, to be fair, you're in Sweden, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Wow. It happened yesterday. It was the first day of daylight savings time had gone off and it was dark, dark by four o'clock, like really dark. Yeah, it's going to take a little bit of a, an adjustment to not want to just shut things down at four o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, that's a different life. That's to, I mean, four, four is early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially for those of us who are prone to existential dread. Just, oh, yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh, it's dark all the time. I might, I don't know <laughs> if I can handle this, but all right. So let's um, let's get into it. Thanks for meeting with us. Appreciate it. Um, I know last time we spoke for the ICIS conversation, you know, you were telling us a little bit about the work that you're doing and so on, but I think it couldn't hurt to maybe hear a little bit more of you on background, you know, take us as far back as you think is important. You know, where did you grow up? How did you first get interested, involved? What was the initial pull for you into the art space? I know you have evangelicalism in your background, so I'm sure you have many stories you could tell, but what, what do we need to know? Well, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, 
And I grew up in a quite conservative evangelical community. And really, for no reason, I, um, for no reason, in a sense, there wasn't somebody that influenced me or certain kinds of cultural habits that shaped me in a particular direction. But I just felt understood in a particular way through the arts and through anything that could allow me to get in touch with creativity and my emotions and the, that kind of sense of existential joy and also questioning uh, why I'm here. And I just felt that listening to music, looking at films, thinking about art, looking at art, even aspects of, of fashion and other kinds of creative endeavors were things that I felt connected me in a way that, that I didn't feel connected in my evangelical upbringing. So within that context, in a particular kind of Christian belief, uh, trying to negotiate what that meant to feel called to live in the art space. And I was fascinated not just in experiencing the arts, but I was fascinated by then how one could talk about it, how you could talk about and then write about your experience with a work of art and what you could bring into that, how you could try to put words to what defy words, to articulate what is inarticulatable. And that became something that I was quite interested in. It also connected in, in many ways what it meant to think theologically or to do theology or to put words to a kind of experience of a religious faith that you could look at certain kinds of denominational markers or kind of confessional markers, but how could you describe and how could you articulate what it means to experience the ineffable? And as time went on, more and more, I began to understand the religious dimension through the artistic dimension. That was something that continues to unfold. Um, but I was trained as, a, as an art historian, focusing on modern contemporary art. This was in the late 80s and into the mid 90s all the while having a particular kind of evangelical faith more or less intact and not affected by how what I was exploring, what I was learning, what I was experiencing as a scholar of the history of art, but also the history of how art critics talked about it and wrote about art. The first part of my career was I spent over a decade as a chief curator of a university art museum, which happened to be the art museum in my hometown. So I was, had a family, I was raising a family in my hometown in a space of the kind of evangelical life that I had. And I was also working in the arts as a curator. And so I was living in that space, a space that was much more international, one that didn't reflect those kinds of monolithic or homogenous values that were characteristic of my Nebraska brand of Midwest or uh, Plains evangelicalism, yet I continued to try to make things work. Um, I published a book through Baker Academic Press called, in 2008, I think, called God in the Gallery, a Christian embrace of modern art, where I looked, <laughs> I was writing it as a, I was a curator, so I was doing it on my spare time. I was trying to make sense of my experience of modern contemporary art in a way that brought a richer, more robust, a bigger and deeper, more complicated, you could say, Christianity 
to bear upon it rather than a kind of thin North American evangelicalism. And I would say that as my career developed in the arts and in art history and in teaching in a classroom situation, uh, my relationship to the church and my relationship to confessional orthodoxy began to become less and less present. I published a, a collection of essays in, say, 2015, I think, with Cascade called Who's Afraid of Modern Art? And that is where I began to try to mobilize a particular set of theological concepts. And I was working with Lutheran concepts, so distinctions between law and gospel or law and grace, person and work, uh, the two kingdoms, trying to utilize them as concepts to think about art and to think about aspects of modern and uh, contemporary art. I had moved from a museum curator position to a full-time academic position uh, teaching modern contemporary art in Omaha, Nebraska, the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And after four years, I moved my family down to Miami to work with an artist whom I had collaborated with on a number of projects. And after a while, he decided to move his studio back to LA and I stayed in South Florida. At that time, then I began teaching at King's College in New York City. And so I would fly up from South Florida to teach. It's, it was a little evangelical college in New York City that drew students who were interested in, in one way or another, um, a liberal arts and a, kind of an evangelical experience in New York City, which meant there was a particular type of student, a particular type of student also that I taught were ones that were interested in the arts, they were usually not interested in a kind of conventional way of thinking about their faith. And so they didn't go to other more, quote unquote, safer Christian colleges in North America. They wanted to experience New York City. Many of them were trying to work through their sexuality, trying to understand how and in what way they could remain a Christian or figure out a way that they could work in and live in an adjacent space. And so the work that I did was to provide them that classroom space where in talking about art, modern contemporary art, we were talking about other things. We were talking about faith and we were talking about theology. And then that would always lead us back to modern contemporary art. So art, the visual arts in particular, but the arts in general were ways to think theologically for me. And as I began then my journey with a formal theological education, which was in the fall of 2019, I felt that to do the work I needed to do, I needed a formal theological training. And it wasn't about getting a PhD, since I already had one. It was about going through the formal education. And so I sought out Catherine Keller at Drew and began working with her. And so I had was able to go through those the two years of coursework, and then the one year of doing the comprehensive examinations, then I felt that I could formulate a theological project that incorporated in some way my experience with the arts, but I didn't know how and, and how it would happen. But I felt committed to more than just reading books of theology, I needed to participate in a certain kind of practice. So those almost four years of being on campus at Drew enabled me to learn the practice of thinking theologically and how questions are formed. And then as 
as I began to formulate my work, I realized that my curatorial experience became more and more visible to me as a way, as a method, as a way to think theologically. And so I began to formulate how I could do a theological project that was a curatorial one, one that could frame or uh, generate relationships between artifacts and concepts, images, and to, to be able to work as I had as a, as a curator in producing a theological project that behaved in some ways like exhibitions that I had curated. And so that's kind of the space that I'm at. I had been interested in some ways with a certain kind of arts, theology and the arts conversation, but I felt that those conversations take place at, say, Duke Divinity School. They take place at St. Andrews. They take place at, at uh, King's College in London. But I felt that they didn't really describe how I was doing what I was doing, and I couldn't figure that out. And then as I began to think theologically as a curator and to think curatorially as a theologian, that's when it began to uh, become more clear. Um, so my project is to do theology that wants to be walked through, that wants to be attended to as one would move through an installation, a museum installation or a gallery installation of artifacts and to treat theology as a material artifact. That That's great. Uh, one of the reasons why I asked Matt to join us was because when you were describing briefly last time we spoke, what a curatorial theology was all about. My mind went to a couple of the projects that you've done, Matt, that aren't explicitly curatorial, but what were the name of those projects again? I, it's been a while since I looked at those. I had a project called Labyrinth, which was, um, it, it was like storytelling experiences in big cities. And that would work with what already exists in terms of street art, architecture, and the kind of evoked history of places to create layers of resonance and dissonance. And so I I think, is that what you were referring to, Matt? Yeah, because I, when you said that, you put that in an email, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, someone noticed that I think curatorially. I was really happy about that. <laughs> but um, but I, I mean, I, at the same time, I, I've often thought of my own sensibility towards thinking as like, if I think about what it means to curate, I think about gardening. So I really love gardening. I love growing things. And I've never done curatorial work in an art gallery or a museum. And I feel like that's a really different thing. And when I read the things that you're involved in, Dan, it feels like, um, you know, you talk specifically about the decontextualization of a piece of art. It's almost taken out of the scenario in which it's produced and it's put into this very new, really quite strange context of a museum or a gallery and that that does something to the meaning can you say more about that because i've often felt that about galleries and often felt like i don't really know what to do with the idea that all these things have become decontextualized and then their only new context is each other if you like mm -hmm. yeah their only and their new context is their each other and then the impact that they have on a viewer that has varying levels of not just expertise, but varying levels of a kind of emotional resonance. And 
varying capacities and orientations in which those kinds of conversations can connect in different ways. There's a problematic component, and then there's also the more positive component. And, I, and I'm working with both in my project. The problematic is the idea that the museum is a mausoleum, that it kills the artifact. And, the, and it this decontextualization takes it out of a historical context. It takes it out of its environment in which, in which it's understood as emerging from and responding to certain events and aspects. You know. And so, and it puts it into play in the present. And yet what it's doing in the present is not what it was doing in the past. And that caused a lot of commentators from the 19th century onward, a lot of consternation that the objects, the artifacts were doing different things. Their life as creative artifacts from the artist had now ceased to be, and now it was doing something else. I wanted to play with that, with my project, to try to think about ways that I could treat theology as a museum artifact and to see what happens. And I'll talk a little bit more about what I think happens. Uh, but then the other aspect of the curatorial is that, for example, when I was working with artists in doing projects with them, they would be making artwork in their studio space and doing what they were doing. And I coming to them with some kind of budget, resources, and a space and an institutional context, a particular kind of institutional context, offering their work to take on a public life that would exist beyond their studio, beyond their making. And so as I was speaking to them and trying to convince them to work with me or convince the, the dealer to allow me to, to pitch this to the artist, the focus was, as the curator, I'm giving you an opportunity to experiment with how your work can live, how this particular body of work can live in a public space. And this public space is a particular kind of public space. It does particular things. And so it's a bit of an experiment. How might it live when it's interacted with from people, you know, in a different context? Also in a museum that focused on a particular kind of art in its collections and what kind of conversations might be taking place in that space then. And so there were ways in which I wanted to curate in a, a project with an artist to push against certain aspects of the museum as an institution or its collections. Or there were times I wanted to explore more deeply aspects of the museum and its collection. And so there was a difference between how the work is operating in the artist studio and how that work, what it does when it's put on display in that space is that difference. What's interesting about the, the kind of mausoleum understanding of the museum is that the work of art, though, is taken from that context and put in a museum context, but it isn't dead. It gives it a, a another kind of life. And that other kind of life is that it's in other conversations with artifacts that it hadn't intended to be in conversation with. And it happens to have a kind of presence, a presentness that can't account for uh, the kinds of viewers and the kind of attention that it gets. So what I've been interested in is how the, how works of art over generations 
develop a kind of reception history or develop a way of impacting generations of viewers. Um, so then in a theological context, what might happen if, if certain theological concepts are treated like that, put in a museum, put on display in conversation with other artifacts, could theology have a different kind of have a different kind of life if it doesn't have those guardrails of participating in, you know, responding to particular theologically driven questions that would take place, say, within the church or that would take place in academic theology. So the museum is functioning for me as this kind of secular space, a third space, a conceptual space that can offer a different life to these, to these artifacts and to try to figure out ways to utilize that strange space in the museum. What's interesting also for me, teaching art history, so doing my PhD at Drew, and then coming into the city to teach art history, and going to the Museum of Modern Art, or going to the museums, and talking to students before they would go into the spaces that I would want them to go in, um, much had to do with helping them feel comfortable with not feeling obliged that they had to participate in a kind of practice that they didn't know about, or the idea, you know, the sense of like, how do I behave? How long do I look at a work of art before, you know, it begins to speak to me or all of those sorts of things. And so what I wanted them to do, um, in some ways, it's unlearning and aspects of how the museum, how you can go about navigating the museum, rather than just getting some education, but how you might experience it. And so for me, the exhibition is a kind of framed experience that can include everything. And so I would do various things with them, have them look at lighting, have them follow people around and see what they're doing. Why are they, why are they here? Are they tourists? Can you tell where they're from? What kind of languages are they speaking? Or follow somebody with some cool shoes or a cool coat and just experience this kind of framed phrase of the exhibition space becomes something that you can experience of which the works of art on display are part of it, but not all of it. And that is something that's quite fascinating to me and trying to figure out a way to do a theological project that the concepts and the artifacts are having a similar kind of effect. Theology is like a lot about words and it seems to me that like when I think about um, like a curatorial experience in terms of a narrative, for example, like there was this statue in Bristol that got torn down, this like slave trader statue of Edward Colston. They group of people tore it down, threw it in the river. Right. So there's this work of art it's out there in the public and it has this narrative, but the narrative suddenly burgeons in this moment. And then this action happens that resituates that work of art at the bottom of the river. And then I don't actually know what happened to it, but I think they were going to dredge it and then stick it somewhere else, like curate its location differently so that the narrative of the slave trading history was more explicit. And so the, the work of art takes on this life that's kind of embedded in story. But when I go to a gallery or a museum in that kind of different, it's not outside in context, it's this sort of decontextualized space. I mean, you included that little uh, like sort of funny cartoon in your work about, you know, the problem with uh, explanations by work of art. Yeah, is that people read them. And so it, it feels like the, the visual curation of art is 
it's like locked in attention with itself about whether it needs to be part of a story or not. And if it is part of a story, whether that story is spoken using human uh, language or whether it's performed using some sort of visual language, for want of a better word. Can you say more about that? Because I think that that curatorial aesthetic, um, it doesn't intuitively to me sit with the idea of a theology which is something that generally is about words so the sort of visual aesthetic of it and then so of course there's been like visual iconography throughout history but in terms of when we do theology we we normally mean what in the end we're going to say something about it or I mean is that what it means for you or do you think there is a kind of visual curation going on in in the way that theology happens how I've tried to think about it I mean, in some ways, it's a it's an attempt to think differently about the relationship of images and words and to figure out a way to do theology or something that could be theology. There's an aspect of not being necessarily being able to point to what I'm doing and saying, well, that's where the theology is. And I'm interested in playing with that. And, and I'm, in fact, going to be more explicit with that, to think about say, a concept, to think about it as an artifact, think about it as a material artifact. And it's something that I've found inspiration or, say, justification through Deleuze, for example. You have the quote about the concept is a brick. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brian Masumi commented on Deleuze's, Deleuze and Guattari's work as, you know, a concept is a brick. There's a material artifact. So what would happen if a certain kind of theological concept if I could frame it, if I could draw a line around it, or if I could articulate it in a way that you could put it on a pedestal and walk around it, if you could insert it in this context that then allowed it or forced it to be in a particular kind of curatorial conversation with other concepts and artifacts and say a work of art, for example, and how the idea that one could attend to visually a theological concept, again, getting justification through Deleuze and how he thought about his work as something that you could just simply take something from it, take a kind of dynamism and utilize it, appropriate it in another context. And so for me, I'm interested in the possibility that theology or certain theological concepts or a theological practice could operate outside a realm of academic theological discourse and beyond church discourse, you know, a discourse of, say, faith-seeking understanding or something of that nature. And then, so then to think about what kind of attention takes place, what kind of experience takes place in a museum the kind of reading that takes place in a museum. So the text that's there, one can't pour over it for hours, but those words are doing something there. So how are they working? What are the concepts that are operating in that exhibition space that are there, but are not articulated? And also just trying to figure out and trying to draw more visible attention to the apparatus, the display apparatus in which theology occurs. What I have found in sharing my work with folks, with theologians, 
we end up having a lot of conversations about what is theology. And they are very similar to questions that I've had with folks about what is art. And I give very similar answers. And it's not satisfying <laughs> because there is a certain sense amongst theologians. How are you defining theology in this? Well, I'm not necessarily defining theology in this. I am exploring what theology could be. Yeah. Can I, and, I just want to sure. re reflect on that because uh, that's something that I was trying to get a grip on a bit as well before we spoke from some of the things I read and, and things that you've said now, my sense is that the kind of curatorial theology you're reaching for is on one hand, it's it's less concerned with what is ultimately produced, right? But more concerned with the sort of form or or means of its production, right? So that the method is really foregrounded more than the sort of the result of it. So in one sense, you could argue that it's, it's not, what I hear is not exactly a theology per se, you know, because often theology is, is understood to be this secondary discourse that re reflects back on the more immediate or participatory aspects of, you know, faith, religious life, uh, mm -hmm. creating art, what have you. I guess what I'm hearing in this is a, a way of almost collapsing the distinction between a primary and a secondary discourse. Absolutely. And I think it's becoming clearer to me what I want to foreground is really the kind of primary, first order, creative, poetic dimension of theology, that there is a particular kind of energy that theology generates that often, often is overlooked for the sake of looking at its content rather than the novelty and the creative dimension of making particular connections. That aspect of the, you'd say, the aesthetic component of theology is something that I want to try to foreground. And so I, and I move back and forth in terms of using, thinking about theology or referring to theology as a discourse or as a practice that, um, that lurks anywhere a practice or a discourse which makes use of say, for want of a better word, faith of some kind, not like religious beliefs or particular kinds of adherence to particular kind of beliefs, but a particular kind of faith, something that Deleuze would respond to when, in I think one of his cinema texts, deepening faith in this world and what he would mean by faith in that respect. That aspect, perhaps, of a theology that can't get away from its vulnerability and its fragility, despite whatever it does. And so then that opens up the possibility that theology operates, say, in passages of literary critics' work. Adorno talked about Proust being the great theologian, and to think about then theology that, that works out in public in that way, or in those non-comfortable situations, say, of the theology department or the theology seminar room in the church uh, sanctuary or the, yeah. And and I've begun to think a bit about my work as a kind of Duchampian gesture when the French artist Marcel Duchamp... Um, you had me at douche. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. No, 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 I get it. <laughs> so when Duchamp um, submitted a, uh, an upside-down urinal uh, for an unjuried exhibition, and it was rejected. It became an occasion for him to 
reflect on and to be able to perform a particular kind of orientation that would focus attention on that object for which you couldn't point to and say, well, there's art there. But it generated art talk and it generated art criticism. It generated experience and interpretation. And that kind of what it would mean to put theology on display in a different context in order to take that theological object and put it in an art context, what about that object? What does it open up about the art context? But also, what does my text, you could say as the urinal in the, in the, in the gallery of theological discourse, what does it reveal about the apparatus for which a text would become theological? Yeah. And and the sense of, you know, how you define theology and the texts that we all can point to trying to define what theology is. What I'm realizing that my text is doing is wanting to raise that question in a different kind of way that opens up the kind of apparatuses that make something theology. And my interest is trying to open it up even wider so that what theology could be is something that's open as open-ended as artistic practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a sort of elaboration in some ways or um, of Tillich and his theology of culture. I don't know if that's something that you engage with, but I, I keep coming back to that in the way that it sort of transgresses the seculum and the, uh, the sacred, which I see some, something similar going on here. And you were talking about Duchamp's urinal and you talked about it last time. And mm. I think you were saying you're you're interested in what is it that occurs? You take something like a urinal and in a certain set of circumstances, in a certain context, it's art. And in another, it's just something you piss in. Um, there's this little bit I pulled out of uh, something you shared here. You wrote, the art museum is a secular cultural institution, but it's a curious and complex blend of sanctuary and laboratory, altar and seminar room, sacred and secular. That generates faith and knowledge. It's a secular machine that simultaneously secularizes and sacralizes, a process that characterizes modern secularism. Yet how it manifests or exhibits these complex energies are distinctive. Having that in mind, as applied to you know, a urinal or any other sort of artifact or, or a theological concept, say, how do you tease those things out between the sacred and the profane, which seem to be these kind of two coexisting modes of a single reality. And like, what, what is the sort of mechanism at work there that brings one to the other? Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to spend this next year and a half in, in Sweden is because Sweden has a very particular understanding of what a secular state is. And yet it has a distinctive relationship to its Christian past that it interprets as its heritage, which then makes heritage studies, um, museum studies here in Sweden, implicitly theological. And it changes or it shifts how sacred or religious artifacts, including religious concepts, are understood in a secular space. And so that I, the idea that the sacred and the secular are always that there's always a movement, and that movement is a temporary snapshots or temporary moments of secularity or or the sacred is something that that I wanted to explore 
And the best way I felt that I could explore it is in an art context or an art museum context in which ordinary objects will become art objects, even though the recognition on the part of the viewers is that they recognize that what, is, what they see is a bowl of milk. And that bowl of milk is a bowl of milk. It's not, and but it's operating in a kind of constellation or a relationship in which what they are experiencing is art. But you can't point to what they're experiencing and say, oh, that's the art part. Duchamp had a um, a coat hanger at the opening. He had people coming through. He moved the coat hanger closer and closer into the center of the space. And what he was interested in was determining if there was a place in that space where attendees of his exhibition would then begin treating it as a work of art and not put their coat and their hat on it. And there's no change to that, to the object. And so one of the things I'm interested in is not just putting theology and theological concepts on display in a museum. I'm interested also in the reverse. Can we treat this as a theological concept? Just for this period or for this argument, can this operate as a theological concept? And then it can go off and do whatever it does. And so that is something that I'm interested in. And the curatorial component is how can, can you frame that? Can you frame it in such a way that the bowl of milk is somehow not visually transformed, but it's relationally transformed? And what is happening in that kind of curatorial relationship in which what is happening is an art experience? And if theology can operate that way, you know, that, that's a component of my work that I'm interested in exploring how non-theological concepts also can operate as theological concepts for a certain period of time, and also how non-theological concepts already operate as theological concepts. They're just not recognized as such. And I think that aspect has to do with certain, you know, there's a certain display mechanism in academic theology, whether it's in the seminar room or in the, the kinds of texts that get published. It's been interesting that in the conversations that I've had with some theologians about the work, we get into questions not only of what is theology, but how is my work theological? And can I be awarded a PhD in theology predicated upon it? Only at Drew. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, only at Drew it operates as theology. I mean, I think that there's there's a certain sense of thinking about the text itself as the PhD dissertation and assumes you know, the kind of life that it has at the library unread and uncommented upon. And then it may operate as cultural criticism if it has a publishable life beyond, you know, ordinary or say conventional theological spaces. So if it has a life, it may operate in a realm that is related to visual studies or related to cultural criticism. And that's really interesting to me that it can shift like that. You reference um, Timothy Morton's hyperobjects in uh, one of the written pieces you sent us. And I was thinking about that idea of a hyperobject when you were describing the way in which objects are placed in certain ways in a curatorial space. Because as I read Morton, one of the features of the hyperobject is it's very hard to point at it and say, there it is, because it becomes sort of distributed in space and time. The the idea of theology itself, in some ways, much of theological imagination is really the placing of a certain 
material event in some kind of relationship with something else. There's a bush on fire. I mean, you could get bushes on fire in the desert all the time, but in the context of, uh, you know, Moses on his way, it becomes a, a theological event. And that then takes on a kind of iconographical relationship to a tradition then uh, as a result. So it's not just a one-time event, but it becomes evocative and, and, uh, and interpretative in other scenarios. So I suppose I'm just, I, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about this, but I'm reflecting it's not just the sort of curation of words or a theological dissertation, if you like. I mean, we should go on and talk, I think, about how you're going to frame your dissertation, because I think this this kind of curatorial approach to it is really interesting. It'd be good to talk about some practical examples, but just to to continue the thinking about like what is theology, uh, it feels like theology is itself already a curation of different visual concepts in relation to each other that then sort of produce this effect. I suppose I'm just saying back to you what you said to me, but I don't think I've actually thought of it quite like that before. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me, there is a a body of theory that has emerged over the last 20 years called the curatorial. And it reflects on art curatorial practices and what kind of knowledge, what kind of knowing emerges in those curatorial situations. And it tries to think then theoretically about it beyond its practical doing of exhibitions. And that body of theoretical work, I find to be really interesting to put in conversation with theology, in part because neither discourse has had any kind of interaction. And so I feel like my import, my smuggling in this kind of curatorial theory into theological thinking and theological discourse also works the other way, where the theological discourse can get smuggled into thinking curatorially. And that aspect of trying to bring out, though, that there is a curatorial element in theology, the idea of coordinating certain kinds of relationships so that there is a not a one-to-one -one relationship, which isn't the curatorial component, it's the resonance, trying to generate a particular kind of energy in the space between. And so part of curatorial practice is putting artifacts in a space in which the space in between the artifacts has an energy that participates in generating the kind of experience. But it can change. You know, it changes all the time as you go through the spaces, as you enter a space from a different angle, or you've seen another room, and then you have other ideas, and you have those ideas, and then you see a juxtaposition of two ideas or two artifacts that begin to do something else. And then all of a sudden, you've got, a, you've got something else that you're feeling and also something else that you're thinking. I think theology operates in that realm. And one of the theological texts that I work with that is crucial for this project is a text by Nicholas of Cusa, who is asked in 15th, maybe 1450s, is asked by some brothers in a monastery about how they can see God. He writes them a treatise on the vision of God, but he sends a preface, a little preface or a prologue, and he describes what they should do with this painting that he sends them. So he sends them the text, 
But what I'm interested in is not the text. What I'm interested in are the instructions that he sends them in terms of how to handle this painting that he sent them. And so he sent them a painting by a colleague, a person that he knew, um, a very well-known Northern Renaissance painter, Roger van der Weyden. The painting is lost, but the presumption is that it's probably a portrait of Christ. And he sends it to them. He gives them instructions, hang it up. And then I want you to stand back and look at it. And then he wants them to move around it. Move around it, and you will see that the eyes follow you. But to experience the full experience, you have to ask your brother coming the other direction what he is seeing, because he's experiencing the same thing. And so Kuss is making this kind of curatorial argument that this picture is the all-seeing gaze of God that everyone is experiencing, but you can't experience all of it. And so the only way you can experience it is to go in motion and then to speak and ask your brother, and then your brother can respond, can bear witness to it. The brother can respond, I see it too. So he curates this machine or this movement in which the brothers are going back and forth, speaking, they're seeing, they're looking, being looked at, and they are experiencing it. Then they are bearing witness to their brother, and they're asking their brother. So there's conversation taking place. And he says, over time, there may be a contemplation that begins to emerge in you. And that idea that the that this curatorial situation that he sets up is one that is about seeing, about movement, and about speech really encapsulates how I'm thinking about this project as something that incorporates movement, speech, sight, this visual attention, and faith that your, your companion going the other direction will respond to you and could say, I don't see anything or I see something. That's the, con the kind of spatial dimension that I'm interested in. And the fact that he doesn't use it as a, he doesn't say, read the text and take a look at the picture if you want every once in a while, or hang it up and use it as a kind of guardian or to bless your reading. It, that's the experiment. And he calls it a, a sensible experiment. For me, that's curatorial all the way through. And I find that to be quite beautiful. And I also find it to be something that I think theology has done over its history of trying to put things in motion in different ways and trying to enable it to develop new kinds of relationships. You know, one of the things that's interesting about what I'm learning about the curatorial is that it doesn't really have a disciplinary home. It's not really art history. It's not studio art practice. It's not really philosophy. And so it operates as a kind of scavenger discipline and also a scavenger practice where the curator doesn't really, isn't an expert on the air. Rarely is the curator an expert on the subject that they are curating. They become versed in it as they are doing it. And that is very interesting to me, the idea that one can become a theologian as one is doing it. There is an aspect of discovering what theology is as you're doing it. And so the kind of thing that I've focused on when I was looking at art critics in my scholarly work as an art historian, looking at art critics and how art critics were 
experiencing particular works and then writing about it is that each time they were writing about an artist or a group of artists, they were defining what art was in that context, because often it was new art. It was art that wasn't in a museum yet. And it was art that was looking strange and it was not conforming to certain presumptions about what art should be. And so the critic was defining it as they were writing about this work. And I would love to have theology operate with that kind of life to it, that you didn't know what it was. You were defining theology for yourself with each, with each text, mm. with each practice. Yeah, it yeah. renders it a, as a inescapably constructive uh, practice. And in, to the extent that we're, we're talking about art and theology as less focused on different kinds of objects or, or this or that liturgy or this or that practice, but about this kind of circuitry or economy of objects, of practices, of, of experiences. I'm curious to hear if you have any more thoughts about what exactly is being exchanged within that kind of circuitry or economy, right? Is it is it symbol? Is it desire? Is it all of the above? Is it, is it so complex that it's difficult to sort of formulate uh, sort of concrete responses to a question like that? The other thing is, it seems that in both instances, the focus is on changing the context of one's relationship to other objects. And if I'm understanding that right, then there's seemingly something similar going on in other kinds of practices that incorporate symbol, meaning, movement, and lighting, these kinds of things to create a kind of liminal space, um, like the theater or in, um, I don't know, ceremonial magic, these kinds of things. I'm not really sure what my question is, honestly, but yeah, is there anything in there that you'd want to respond yeah. to? I think what it does is what I think I'm interested in is shifting how theology relates to image, symbol, desire, um, creativity, art, shifting that relationship or even just tilting it a little bit that opens up another way to think about the creative imaginative dimension of theology as something that could take on a particular kind of character predicated upon its formal structure. And this is something Deleuze actually writes about in The Logic of Sense, in which he calls theology science of non-existing entities. And both Petra and I have found that to be really, really provocative and really helpful and freeing. The idea that theology is making things up and the potential of making things up for a particular purpose. And he also talks about this age is an age in which we've discovered theology as a structure, not as the content, but as the structure. And I think that is really interesting to think about. What is that structure? Or is there a sensation that is generated by theology that can be utilized to deepen our connection in this world, to respond to injustice, climate catastrophe, et cetera, rather than entrench it. And so part of the strategies or part of the, the goal of political theology is to see how theologies as an energy or as a dynamic of symbols and signs and images entrench power 
and deepen those kinds of injustices used as a way to get from point A to point F <laughs> as a kind of fudging. And yet what I'm interested in doing is not denying that, that theology works within a context of desire, of fudging, of generating a particular kind of energy that can be utilized in a transformative way, in a, we'd say, a positive way, in a, in a way that serves democracy, that serves the possibility that the world can be otherwise. You had talked about you had talked about gardening and the cultivating, and there's an aspect of that that is a part of a curatorial component where you want a conversation to occur between these objects or these partners, and you don't really have an end in mind. But what you're doing is trying to get that thing to grow in whatever way it is intended to grow, and it's a different kind of gardening. And I think that that's the kind of energy that Petra and I are experimenting with in which art and creativity play a central role, but it's not as if we are interpreting art with theology. It's all mixed in together as a way to try to think differently and to practice differently what it means to do what we're doing in this space of, of a context in which the question of our future is a fraught one and a fragile one. I, I work in, well, I do organizational change management, but a big part of that uh, has to do with uh, learning, right? And so as an instructional designer, I'm constantly having to learn different things. I pop in and out. I'm never really the expert. You made me think of when you're talking about the gardening metaphor. Sometimes I've talked about learning as a sort of holotropic affair where it it really is more about um, you need some sun over here and you need some water over here. So I think there's a interesting way in thinking about learning itself as a as a kind of in the way that you were describing but that's not doesn't really no, I think have it, to do with I think it I think it does absolutely absolutely I mean there's a curatorial component in which you say well what if I and there's an there's a a lot of time spent on what color do you paint the walls how high should the pedestals be should the how should the lighting occur and you think well you know it doesn't really matter but the fact is to say in working in works of art in which subtle changes in the visual appearance of the work is all about the work. Like there's nothing inside it. It's all on the surface. And so how you present it will have a huge impact on it. And so, so the idea that maybe theology is also about lighting and it's about how high the pedestals are or the color that you paint the walls or how you organize the flow of a space. You know, the question of, can you have a space that has one work of art in it? And so can you do theology that operates in a similar kind of yeah. in a similar kind of way? Well, all the all the old church ladies who are arguing about what kind of carpet they need in the chapel are cheering you on. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm down with it. I am down with it. When I was in the evangelical space more, I would get invited to various churches, Protestant churches who were feeling guilty that they weren't utilizing artists and utilizing artworks in their church services. I would often counsel them, if you have artists in your congregation, put them on boards, 
put them on on a landscaping advisory council or something. Have them think about how you shape the movement from the parking lot into the into the church or the lighting in the church. Have them focus on that, not just about putting an artifact up, but have them focus on this visual atmosphere component. That's how they work. They work in that realm. And maybe the conclusion is the impact of the artists involved in those decisions is that there are fresh cut flowers every day, or every Sunday in a particular space. There's a lighting that is the junk you've stuffed within eyesight of every person who comes in, you've cleaned that out. Just those kinds of distinctions are what artists work in. And so that is also something that I think is an interesting way to think about art and its relationship to, say, a church space. So I'm down with the church ladies. They're very excited to hear that. <laughs> I realize we're, we're probably almost out of time, but we haven't asked you specifically yet about the rooms that you're curating for your project. Your PhD project is sort of half, as I understand, it's a half a work of theory, and then half of it is you're physically going to curate rooms and people encounter the arguments you make in a curated space, each with a different focus. Have I understood that right? Yeah. You know, and it's doomed to failure because it's a book that wants to be looked at, or it's a book that is... Got to make a pop-up book. The first yeah. theological <laughs> pop-up book. It would be brilliant. Well, don't tempt me because I have like, I really want to do little models. And so there are... Yeah, great. And I've done... When Petra and I had our first supervision, when I was in Stockholm last last year, last May, and I was outlining the I was outlining the scope of my project, I organized it along the lines of a studio visit. So I had her come to my living space, and I put the chapters up visually on the walls, and so I had images of the artworks that I would be talking about on the walls, but I also had written out the concepts and select authors that I was going to be working on. And so to be able to create a, a kind of floor plan that she would move through. And it yielded very interesting observations. And it's something that then I began to like begin to work through more and more. The first half of the text is really introducing the theory of the curatorial, uh, the concept of the exhibition, what it does, how it can operate in a theological context, and then looking at some theologians, some of their concepts that underwrite or provoke uh, this project, justify it, could say perhaps. And then the second half, I've organized according to a floor plan. Uh, curators use floor plans where they, they will draw in two dimensions the rooms, and then they would begin to plot where things would go. Uh, those chapters then begin to function like rooms. And so I have a room that's entitled vitrine. And I use the vitrine, which is the plexiglass covering on a pedestal as a concept. And so what I'm trying to do is to try to try to think about the vitrine as a theological concept that both protects something valuable, but also reveals its vulnerability and also generates the value as well. And artists have used the vitrine in a number of different ways. And so the vitrine is a standard curatorial tool. And so I use one of the rooms that is entitled vitrine. I utilize three visual artifacts in this context. One is the uh, Ghent altarpiece, 
the 15th century Northern Renaissance painting by um, Hubert and Jan van Eyck that's in St. Babo Cathedral in uh, Ghent. I use the Shroud of Turin. So it's an image not made with human hands. And so that becomes a theological concept. And then I use uh, Marcel Duchamp's urinal that he entitled Fountain as another object not made with human hands, or at least not made with the artist's hands. And so those objects then utilize a vitrine in different ways. And within that context, I look at the theological concept of the image not made with human hands, the original image, the concept of sovereignty. I have another room called Tour. The museum tour is one of the means of communication. It's a, it's something that I did so many times speaking in a context of movement in the space. And so it focuses on words and images. I utilize the, the theorist Guy Debord, his concept of uh, derive or drift and how you move about space and what that might mean as you are encountering concepts and ideas and images. I'm using a particular work of art uh, by Kurt Schwitters that he spent maybe 15 years before the Second World War working on called the Merzbau in Hanover, uh, which was destroyed by an Allied bombing raid. Thinking about his role as the maker, but then also as the curator of a particular kind of experience when people would come to visit. I have another room called Dust. Dust and insects were always in museum spaces and gallery spaces, always sweeping out the dust, eliminating uh, the dust. But I'm interested in what might happen when a work of art dusts up, when it creates a dust up. And so I'm looking at a queer Black artist, Adam Pendleton, his installation at the Museum of Modern Art called Who is Queen? And looking at what occurs when he dusts up racial injustice and uh, sexuality in that space. And my intention then is to allow the reader to move in and out of those chapters mm. as rooms, getting what they want, and then going back into another space. And so how I'm formatting it in terms of sections mm. and how I'm able to create a sense of openness in right. a text that wants to be read linearly and in terms of following an argument and so how might a work of theory operate differently uh, or at least create the potential that it can operate differently? So the formal structure is something that is just as important for me yeah. as content. Some yeah, ways. no, I, I love that. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of times people talk about a thousand plateaus, but it is intentionally set up as a rhizomatic text. But then even if you kind of go out of order, you're still within the contours of a particular argument. And I think it's really fascinating to think about what if it was choose your own adventure theology, you know, and you're kind of bouncing back and forth and you're able to wander freely between these different kinds of concepts. I think that's brilliant. Oh, thank you. And I'm actually at the end, I will have a uh, exhibition catalog of no exhibition. And so the idea of, uh, of this non-existent exhibition uh, is also something that's quite interesting to me, but I'll have a checklist. It'll draw frames around not just the works of art, but the concepts also, you know, in each of the rooms, what is being addressed. But also what's so interesting is that there will be other things that will be addressed that I'm not aware of, or those kinds of relationships that are generated. I'm hoping to be able to have, to be able to create a sense that there is 
open space. Matt, you were talking about a certain kind of frustration or not quite knowing how you negotiate a space, uh, the gallery space. My hope is that not knowing can also be cultivated and shaped in such a way that it becomes an openness so that it can be a freedom to be able to move in a direction that can generate ideas and images that don't have to follow a particular intention of a curator, but just are able to be experienced as these phenomenon that are there to be attended to. And my sense ultimately is that it's a work that fails, but my hope is that in the failure, it generates these interesting, Yeah, it adjusts the conversation in a different way. Yeah, the Labyrinth Project I mentioned earlier, where I do these storytelling experiences in cities, it draws from the psychogeographers and uh, Guy Debord and the idea of drifting. And um, I think what I found really interesting curating experiences in cities with people, and it's, I'm using curating in a different way there, but I think it has a similar fantasy. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it, I am always oscillating between these two design instincts. One is to really like double down on the drifting and the unpredictable, utilizing the really exploratory where it's not pre-planned. It allows you to break out of set pathways that you would normally take in discovering things you wouldn't normally take. And what I find is that when I take groups around that, there's a whole load of people who really struggle with it. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they are and they don't know what to say about it. Sometimes that can be really great, and then other times it feels like people are too lost to even know that being lost is valuable. Uh, and so then other times I've designed stories, and the idea of the labyrinth really is, um, yeah, I took it from that kind of church, medieval church tradition where you walk a pathway and I try to scale up to a city, and the idea of being disorientated because you keep twisting round, and so you can, I can kind of curate in those sense quite interesting narrative experiences, but I've really then designed it. I mean, I'm taking you on a journey that I designed for you. And that tends to have, like people come away, like in the reviews are better. <laughs> but, but I don't think I'm, I'm not providing the space for people that the idea of that drifting process provides. And so I feel like there's a similar thing in, you know, the idea of a linear theological argument, you know, you take someone on a someone gets to the end of the book and you've argued it really well. And they're like, Oh, that was amazing. It'll be interesting. Like what happens when they go into the environment where they choose their own order? Is it like, how transformative is it? Yeah. No, like lost is okay. And I think there are different levels of potential for curating so that there can be ways in which the curatorial is maybe a little more designed and it's designed in particular ways that generate a range of experiences that you more or less have an awareness of. And then there is a curatorial practice that, as you say, can allow more freedom. I mean, the quote that you um, repeated from this curator colleague who said the problem with wall labels is that audience members read them. Well, that can be really frustrating and it can presume a certain kind of elitism that you don't need the wall labels. <clears throat> but that's not the intention of that statement. But you have to figure out how then you do guide and how you do it in a way that opens up rather than shuts down. And I think the fact that there's more program, more programmed component is kind of part of that process. And the challenge that I have 
I think, is to not generate something that is seen as a failed attempt to do a kind of communication that it's not intending to do. So that the kind of incomprehensibility, that fine line between the text is incomprehensible or the text is doing something totally different that I understand and I don't like, or I understand and it allows me to think differently. That is where I think in some sense where I'm at right, right now in terms of having to really tighten it and to be even a little more radical up front in order to create that sense that it's not trying to be something that it's not. And the potential is it can be read in a linear fashion or it doesn't have to be. I remember a curator saying one of the wonderful things about exhibitions and museums is you can always leave. You can just like walk out after you've seen three of the four rooms or you could come in at another yeah. place. Love it or leave it. Yeah, for sure. And then <laughs> the idea of then like what happens then if you like for me, I would go to a museum and just hang out in the coffee house or the cafe or something or just sit and watch people. And I think that's a completely important way, valid way of experiencing an art museum. And that qualifies as an art, as an art museum visit. It kind of catches everything. John Cage, in a review that he did of um, of the artist Robert Rauschenberg's white paintings in like 1951, said, art is the imitation of nature, or it's a net. And I love the fact that art is a net, that it captures things. And so I've been thinking about that net as what the museum exhibition does. It's a net that catches, at that moment, those people. So we're sharing something in that space, even though we don't know each other. And we are interacting. And that net also includes the lighting, the design work. It includes the various psyches of everybody. It includes the security guards. It includes everyone. And that net aspect is something that I'm interested in. Like, how might theology operate if it's a net? Then that just brings in all kinds of stuff rather than picking and saying, oh, this is theological or that's theological. What if the net itself is theological and you're just, hmm. you're framing it, you're curating in that net-like way? There's something interesting, I think, about the whole curatorial question as a theological question, you know, to what extent are you shaping the experience for people versus people having this kind of absolute freedom uh, there's a whole sort of, you know, to what extent is your is life determined versus free, the kind of curator as God. Uh, yeah, and there are certain aspects of Whitehead where Whitehead's God begins to function like a curator. He's taking things that are already there and he's he's caring for them in such a way that allows them to to flourish. And certainly with the curator, the concept that everybody's a curator, or the idea that everybody's curating their playlists or their watch lists on Netflix as a kind of selecting their preferences. Um, and the very the fact that people have that can have that in mind when they see how my project is curatorial is something that I kind of like to work with and to work beyond, like to push through that to focus on a curatorial component that is a a sharing component. You know, for you in with the Labyrinth project, it was curatorial in the sense that you were also sharing it. You were setting it out in which there could be a more or less programmed component. Yet you couldn't predict the interactions of the folks. You couldn't predict how they were going to, or the weather, or the 
all of those sorts of things that are part of that curatorial net that you actually cast. And so my way of doing theology is to draw attention to those things as part of it, the lighting, the, the pedestal, or the weather, the kind of folks that you have with you are part of the theological element, I think. Matt, I was wondering, does that have a sort of Latorian resonance for you at all? Like, I don't know, for some reason, I'm, I'm hearing like a sort of actor network thing going on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, this is where Latour and Ingold together are really interesting, because I think that Latour's sense of a net is a network of agencies. And so I think the question of, you know, to what extent is the curator, the master agency, the sort of center of the net uh, or not? Uh, is a really interesting question. And one of the ways that Ingold responds, and we in interviewed uh, Tim Ingold, the anthropologist, uh, on the show a year or two ago. Um, oh, and you posted, Matt, when Ant meets Spider, just like a reading of it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, recently, is a recent episode. And that that's taken from one of uh, Tim Ingold's uh, collections of essays. And a lot of that is about the weather. Uh, it's about the weather as a medium. Uh, so he's making the point, you know, actually, we just uh, we just like assume that the air is not there, uh, but the air is as much a medium as a plexiglass vitrine is a medium. And so, the, yeah, the weather is a really uh, profound curatorial part of our experience that is curated elsewhere by whom? I mean, theological history, it's like, well, it's like God or like Zeus with the lightning or whatever. Um, but now we would default to um, descriptions of like distributed agencies uh, that form these complex meteorological patterns, uh, but nonetheless, all of them are shaping the curatorial ex experience of going outside. Uh, and so I think the question of the net, and I, I think there's still something to be done with uh, Ingold's critique of the tour, which is when Ant meets Spider, because he's talking about everything as a network is a bit reductive because really there's a spider that's kind of got this skilled practice. In some ways, the artist or the curator could be the spider with the skilled practice. Um, and yet I still feel like in some sense, the spider is entangled in her web in a way that Ingold doesn't, uh, yeah. doesn't really acknowledge fully. And I mean, um, the aspect, no, I think that's absolutely, sorry to interrupt, but I was just so, it, it raises this question. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about in terms of what the curator does, the curator has to raise money. The curator has to go to these dinner parties. The curator has to do things that are, you know, sometimes the project is predicated upon the fund is always, it's predicated upon the funding they get or the shape of the catalog or the the artifacts that they're able to generate have to do with their capacity to work with other agencies and to deal with other politics. Um, you know, this museum is not going to lend this artwork to me because the directors hate each other, or there was something that took place, or all of those kinds of things are things that that kind of entanglement that is part of the curatorial process that isn't made visible. But what is generated are those relationships or those temporary allegiances. You know, I think about like your planning for the labyrinth, all of the kind of administrative, all of the kinds of things that are predicated upon things that are not really, that are beyond your control, but are part of how you might be able to affect it in some sense. And also Latour, Latour's exhibitions that he's done with Peter Weibel are very influential in terms of how I've thought about this 
book that begins to function in somehow like an exhibition and why the exhibition is something that's that Latour wanted to work with, with some of his questions of democracy and iconoclasm. And so those kinds of things where you see theorists realizing that their thinking needs a spatial element and that it's not just the texts, but it's generating this spatial experience. One of the best stories I've heard about curatorial agency, uh, and it relates to a, the vitrine, is Yvonne Sherwood writes in, she's a, a biblical scholar, writes in the book Biblical Blaspheming about this exhibition. I think it was 2006 in the Glasgow Museum of Modern Art, and it was a LGBT exhibition, and an artist placed an open Bible with the sign, if you feel like you've been written out of this story, write yourself back in. And there's just a whole bunch of pens. Oh. And so people just take to the Bible. I mean, they just, they like hit it. Uh, but so much of it is like, fuck you, God, you know, you motherfucker, uh, you, you know, and they're like underlining stuff and just saying bullshit, you know, like, uh, you don't even know about this. And like people like bring this intensity, this this intense exclusion to this text that they feel has represented so much of what has become problematic in their experience. I mean, it, it's a profound kind of artistic engagement. Anyway, the media goes nuts. I mean, major news stations are calling for the still not defunct blasphemy laws of the UK to come into force <laughs> to prosecute these people. Uh, and so the museum is like caught in this nightmare. And in the end, they stick the thing inside a plexiglass vitrine and they put some little bits of paper with the pens with a little box like and you can like write something you want to have included and then post it in the box. Just a suggestion box. Suggestion box. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Well, take it under consideration. Wow. Right. When, when was this, Matt? When was this? I, I think it was 2006. The, the book okay. is Biblical Blaspheming by Yvonne Sherwood, and it's just a wonderful book about the complexity of the Bible and its relationship to public discourse. It's uh, really extraordinary. But yeah, this is how she opens the book. That's fantastic. I'll, I will have to, I'll have to look at that. I mean, the curators didn't think that that would happen. There are so many things and various kinds of controversies that occur in public museums, and it usually catches the curators off guard. They don't know. And on one hand, you think, why don't they know? But then on the other hand is like, that's the, the kind of beauty and the risk of curating is that you really don't know the response how the engagement is going to uh, generate certain kinds of responses. And there's something quite wonderful about that, that it's not predictive enough that you've already disciplined the behavior of the viewer. And so as much as museums are places of power that rely upon a whole apparatus of fossil fuel, wealth, and all of that sort of stuff, I still feel that what Foucault wrote about museums as being those institutions that are heterotopias, that bear with them the potential for undermining. There's still that possibility that the museum is that place. And I feel that way with theology, that as much as kind of theology is fraught, that there's still this transformative dimension that opens it up, constantly opening it up. 
again and again and again. And my hope is that this gesture is a way to think about opening it up in another realm. Do, do you feel that that's true of the, of the church as well? That's something I, yeah. I, I kind of go back and forth on. Yeah, in some ways, in some ways, yeah. Well, this has been fun. Uh, I know we went a little bit long, um, but we, I feel like we hit our stride late there. Um, so uh, I'm happy we did. And I can't wait to hear more about the project and how it unfolds. And I, I guess I should uh, commend you on what I take as being new theological ground. Yeah, I mean, kudos for that. It's hard. That's hard to pull off. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate it. And Matt, can you send me I know we talked about your labyrinth project, but can you send me some yeah. information? You should go through it. It's a cool experience. Yeah, I've got a couple online at labyrinth.city. Uh, there's one in the Alamo and one in Barcelona. Um, but there's a that, that was like the virtual version. I mean, it's the same like challenge of how do you take something that's yeah. kind of materially, physically yes. involved moving moving bodies around locations, and then how do you do that in a virtual space, um, which affords you some things that the on location experience doesn't but at the yes. same time you really you lose some quite powerful aesthetic sensations um yes so it's a trade-off uh, but obviously i can't send you those i'd have to take you there this was great thank you so much you two for taking time to do this and i hope i can see you guys in person at some point um sooner rather than later yeah, that'd be great. Next time you're um, in Jersey or the New York area, let me know. We'll get together for a drink at least. Sounds good. All right, cool. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you both. Talk soon. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye.